Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. Uh, last week we started our Christmas series, and we've called our Christmas series this year the Christmas Option. And we talked about a few different things. We started out by talking about this, the fact that there are just certain things in life that we just romanticize. We just love to romanticize them. This is one of them. We romanticize the idea of having a dog someday. We'll have a dog someday. Yes, thank you. We'll have a dog. And we romanticize that idea, don't we? Like, mm, uh, like just when the picture goes up, you want to go, mm, uh, and we, identi- we just romanticize this idea. But then one day you're at work, or one day you're out running errands, and you come home to this, and you go, mm, maybe having a dog because they just chewed up your furniture. And dogs are difficult at times, aren't they? Those of you who are dog owners, right? They're difficult at times, and, and you got to feed them, and you got to pay for that. And oh my goodness, did you see the vet bill? You know, it's all of that stuff. And so we romanticize that. But then we talked about some other things that we romanticize, and this was namely one of them. Sometimes we romanticize the idea of Christmas. Mmm, Christmas, and it's about a warm, glowing fireplace, and it's about a beautiful, glowing tree. But the first Christmas was anything but that. We talked about that. The first Christmas was extremely difficult. Here's Mary, a young girl, and she's super excited because she's engaged to be married. And not only is she engaged to be married, but she's engaged to be married to Joseph. And the Bible describes Joseph as a man of great character. He's a righteous man. And so she's really excited. And then we also saw this, that Joseph is from the line of David. All the Jews knew, and they were all thinking about this, the Messiah will come from the line of David. And she's marrying into that line, and there would be some social prestige, and there would be some religious prestige, and she's really excited. And then the virgin finds out that she's pregnant. And in first century Roman culture, that Christian culture, Jewish culture, that very well means that you could be stoned to death. And instead of just turning and complaining and shaking her fist at God, she's, she's surrounded in scandal. All of a sudden, what does she do? She goes to worship. And we said at the end this, that your difficulty is your opportunity to declare your worship. Now, we said it's not easy. It's not easy when things are really difficult. It's not easy. Just, oh, I just feel like worshiping. We don't always feel that. But we said that worship displays your trust because in the middle of really difficult times, you went to worship. It means you must really trust God, and the Bible always blesses trust. I will say this, that I found this, that this was something that resonated with a lot of folks here, that we have this grandiose romantic idea about Christmas. And there are a lot of you who have said, it ain't real romantic for me. And it's a difficult time for me. And maybe it's your first Christmas without a loved one and someone has passed away and it's going to be really difficult. And you have these expectations that it's up here, but it feels like it's here. And this gap that's in between causes great tension. Also, maybe it's your first Christmas of just being alone because you've recently divorced or you've separated. Now my kid's got to split time between two homes. Maybe I've just recently lost a job or maybe I've got a diagnosis. And so you said, Christmas isn't real romantic for me this year, right? However... We still say this, your difficulty is your opportunity to declare your worship. And so this week, we're going to talk about a little something different. We're going to talk about the inconveniences of Christmas. Now, an inconvenience is a little bit different than a difficulty, because a difficulty oftentimes feels like, bam, it's a roadblock. It's a roadblock, and it's just harsh. And an inconvenience is sometimes more of a detour, and it's just, it's, it's just it's an annoyance. And so we're going to look at that today and see what we learn from the Christmas story about the inconveniences of Christmas. So I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And when you get it, if you just stand to your feet for me. If you're new, if you're a guest or you're a visitor, it feels like, are we going to up down the whole morning? We don't. 
But when we read our primary text, we always stand to our feet. It's, it's not right or wrong. It's just a thing we do because it's a great reminder for us that this isn't just a book written by some fellows. This is God, the God of creation, who is now speaking to some folks in a room in Bloomington, Minnesota. And so I'm starting in verse 1. It says, at that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient hometown. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took in the Mary to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of clothes and laid cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for this morning. And Father, it's been a joy, a pleasure, a privilege to worship you, to declare our praises and our worship of you. And now, God, we want to continue that. We want to continue worshiping you. And we want to do that in your word. We want your Holy Spirit. We desperately need your Holy Spirit to speak now. Spirit, what are you saying to us this morning? What would you say to us this morning? Speak, Holy Spirit, and do it in a way that just draws us to you, draws us to you wherever we're at this morning, from wherever we're coming from this morning, that it would draw us to you. Father, I'm praying the exact same thing for those who are online. They're not in the room, but God, would you draw them to you? Draw us all, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Hey, continuing this same thing, because we want to talk about the inconveniences of Christmas, I just want you to think in your head. Don't say anything out loud. Don't say anything out loud. I want you to just start thinking in your head, what are all your Christmas movies? Just think, just start thinking, what are all your Christmas movies? Christmas movies, got it? Okay, got about 20 seconds. Person on your right, person on your left, person behind you, start swapping ideas. Christmas movies, go! Okay, enough, enough, enough Christmas movies. Raise your hand. How many said it's a wonderful life? Yeah. Greatest Christmas movie of all time. Yeah. Jimmy Stewart, remember that? Love that. Uh, how many of you said, uh, here's, a, here's a new favorite for me. Here's a new favorite for us, Fred Claus. Anybody say Fred Claus? Just, just me, just, just us, just two of us, okay. Let me give you this one and just yell it out as soon as you know what it is. It's, it's kind of a Christmas movie. What is it? Home Alone. Everybody knows that. So Home Alone is kind of a Christmas movie, right? So this is Kevin, and this is what happens. Everybody's coming to Kevin's family's house. Remember this in Chicago? And then the next day they're going to the airport, and they're going to fly out, and they're going to have Christmas in Paris. Remember this? And Kevin got a little mouthy at the table. And so Kevin is being disciplined by his parents. He's got to sleep in the attic. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, it's not like some barbaric attic. They've got a little bed up there, whatever, whatever. So Kevin has to go up and sleep in the attic. Overnight, everybody's sleeping, and there's a power outage. Remember this? And so nobody's waking up. And all of a sudden, somebody wakes up, and they realize, oh, my goodness, the electricity went out, and we got to go. We all got to get to the airport. And in the craziness, they all get showered, they get dressed, and they get bags, and they get to the airport, they get on their flight, 
And they're about halfway through the flight, and, and the mom is kind of... And they realize they left Kevin at home. And so now the mom's panicking, right? And, and so they finally land. They get to Paris, and then she's got to turn around and get back. But it's holidays, and it's Christmas. And so she can't get a flight for two days, and she's doing everything she can. And naturally, everything is going wrong. And it's just inconvenience, detour, inconvenience, detour. Long story short, she gets back, and the whole family gets back, and they all get there. But there have been all these inconveniences, inconveniences, inconveniences. And that's what we're looking at today, the life inconveniences. And we're specifically, we're looking at the inconvenience of Christmas. Because one of the things we said is that when we romanticize, in particular, when we romanticize the Christmas story, we miss out on some of the greater truths of what really happened. And so look at your scripture. Uh, I, I would say this, I would just back up, that when these inconveniences happen, a lot of times it causes us to start asking questions, and some of you may have been there. First, oftentimes we ask, where's God? Like when all these inconveniences are going on, where's God? Secondly, though, we oftentimes ask this, does God even know what's going on? Is God aware? Does he know what's going on? Right? And then we're asking a third question that's even a little more severe, and it's this, does God even care? And it, truth be told, and it, this may be you, but maybe you get to a point where you even go, is there a God? Right? So we're going to look at the story this morning. Here's for the passage in Luke chapter 2. It says this, at that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Now, let me give you two pennies of at that time with Augustus. Augustus was born Octavian. Octavian is his name. And his grandmother is the sister of the famed Julius Caesar. So Julius Caesar is the great uncle of Octavian. And growing up, it became very apparent at a very young age that this Octavian was a very special young man. And so his great uncle, Julius Caesar, actually adopted him and very quickly named him his heir. Well, within a year of doing that, Julius Caesar is murdered. And so now you have Octavian, along with two others, that kind of assume control of the entire Roman Empire. Now, that whole Mediterranean area had been a hot mess. It had just been war and a hot mess for years and years. And now, under these three, it was, yeah, it got hotter. It was even worse. And so, very soon, Octavian defeats the other two, becomes emperor of the entire Roman Empire, and assumes the name Caesar Augustus. Okay, that's this Augustus, and it says that he decrees a census. Now, we all think this, census is like one, two, three, and we're counting. We're just counting folks, and they do. They count folks, but the only reason they're counting people is so they can tax people. You count people so you can tax people, and so what it means is this. Everybody in the Roman Empire, which is partly right now that strip of land called Israel, right? They're going to be getting higher taxes, and so higher taxes is kind of an inconvenience, right? And then the text goes on and it says this. Everybody, because of this, returned to their ancestral towns to register for the census. You have to go back to your ancestral town. Like me, I didn't grow up here, but now I live here, and I just register, and I vote here in Bloomington. This is what I do. But for the census, you had to go back to your ancestral town. Well, who cares? What does that have to do with our story? Well, because Joseph was a descendant of King David, remember we said from the Davidic line, he has to go to Bethlehem in Judea. David's ancient hometown. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. So again, if you're visual, you, you, you picture this. Israel is like this giant strip of land, right? The northern region is Galilee. Right in the middle, you have Samaria. And the lower region is Judea. Nazareth is up in Galilee, up north. Uh, Bethlehem is in Judea, down south. 
roughly the distance they would have traveled would have been about 80 to 90 miles. Now, for Joseph, he's a young carpenter, young guy, kind of rugged, not a big deal, 80 miles, 90 miles. They estimate it would have taken about four days. That's his trip, it would have been about four days. But it says this, he took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged. Very important. He's not married to her yet. They are betrothed. You need to understand, though, ancient Jewish culture, which says this. They're kind of two stages. So they are betrothed, which means they're engaged. But this engagement means if you break off that engagement, it would take an actual divorce. Okay? They're, they're married, but they haven't consummated the marriage yet. So they're not technically married, considered married, but they are engaged, they're betrothed. And Mary is now expecting a child. We remember that, right? She's now expecting a child, which means this. The trip for David, it's kind of inconvenient, but it went about about four days. Now, the trip with Mary, just so you know, Mary at this stage is in her last trimester of pregnancy. We think she's right at about that eight-month mark. Okay, she's an eight-month pregnant woman going to make this journey. You know they don't have cars. We, we, do we all know that? We know where we're at in time. They don't have cars. Okay, so she's going to walk this whole thing or she's going to ride a mule. Either way, if they went two and a half miles an hour and they went for eight hours a day, that trip would take about four days, four to five days. But Joseph's not going to drive her that hard. That wouldn't leave him any time to stop and get a bite to eat. But not like they're stopping somewhere, but fix a bite to eat. Hey, we just pulled in. Hey, but, but I'm just saying, like, they don't have any time to stop and prepare any kind of meal. They don't have any time to just stop and rest. They don't have any time to stop and go to the bathroom. And Joseph loves her. He's not going to drive her that hard. And so the reality is this trip just went to at least a week. Okay, we're minding our own business. Our life is good. Hmm, increased taxes. That's a little inconvenient. Got to go all the way down to Bethlehem. That's inconvenient. He's going to take Mary with him. Why would he take Mary with him? He doesn't technically have to, and he's the one who's from the Davidic line. Now, she is, but she's a woman, sorry, patriarchal culture. And so the reason that he's most likely going to take her with him is because the scandal around Mary, to believe, believe it or not, because we always think the Virgin Mary, the scandal around Mary is kind of growing. Remember, she's single, but she's pregnant. In an ancient Jewish culture, there's only two things that could account for it. Either she's been having relations with Joseph or she's been unfaithful. Joseph doesn't want to leave her there, so now he takes him with her. Right, even his inconvenient four-day trip just went to an even more convenient, at least seven-day trip, seven- to eight-day trip, right? Then the scriptures go on, and it says, and while they were there, while they were in Bethlehem. So just so you know this, we often have this picture in our head that they just pull into town in time to get a place and have a baby, well, remember this, that everybody is returning to their ancestral town. Everybody is. And so the reality is they probably got all kinds of family there, and they've been there, and they've gathered there, and they've seen folks for a while. She was at least eight months pregnant when they took off. Now they've been there a little while, and now, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Now the baby is born while they're in Bethlehem. And the scripture says this, that she gave birth to her firstborn son, she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger, we'll come back to that, because there was no lodging available for them. Now let me just, let me just clear something up, because this verse is almost unfortunate, the way that it's become understood in American culture. Uh, our translation here says there was no lodging available for them. Many of you know the phrase, there was no room at the inn, right. And so we all have this picture in our heads Everybody has played this movie in your head, right? You know what I'm talking about.
Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? It's always the innkeeper who comes out wearing a robe, and he's got this glowing lantern, and he's just like, there is no room at the end. That, that's, that's really a great misunderstanding. The word, ours, ours doesn't even say at the end, but the word in the New Testament, the Greek word that's actually used for the, for the word in, is the Greek word kataluma. Kataluma doesn't mean like a B&B. It doesn't mean a hotel room. Kataluma it means the guest room. It means there wasn't any room at the guest room of that home. Think about this for a minute. This is a first century Jewish culture. They value family and they value hospitality. There's no way that they're telling a pregnant family member, like they're not saying that. So the reality is when a first century Jewish culture read this, and they saw the word manger. Manger doesn't mean crib. Manger means feeding trough. He was born in a feeding trough. And so what this is telling us is, no, there's not room in the guest room. And say so they would have stayed down in the family room on the first floor where folks oftentimes pull the animals in. Why? To protect the animals, to keep the animals safe. But also, it's winter, man. They warm up the house. And so Jesus was really born in this family room. Bottom line is this, regardless, either way, there's all kinds of inconvenience. There's all kinds of inconvenience around the original Christmas story. There's the census. There's the travel. There's a woman who's eight months pregnant. Talk about inconvenient. And then they get there, and they don't technically get to stay in the guest room. But I want you to say these words with me. Repeat it with me. Inconvenient and intentional. Because that's what I think is really happening. I think that's what we have to see here. If we romanticize the story, we miss this. This whole story was inconvenient. And you need to know this. This whole story is intentional. This is the working of God. And you say, well, Neil, how is this intentional? How do you say it? Micah 5.2, the prophets would have all have written this and everybody would have known this. Look what it says. But you, O Bethlehem, down in Judea, seven days journey with an eight-month pregnant wife. You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Ephrathah is the ancient name of the city of Bethlehem. If you read in the book of Genesis about Ephrathah, that is Bethlehem. You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are, the, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, and yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you, O Bethlehem. Why? On God's behalf. It's the plan of God. The prophets have prophesied about this forever. God is going to bring this to pass. Was it inconvenient? It was absolutely inconvenient. Is it God's intention? It was absolutely God's intention. Let me give you the big so what, and I want to flesh this out a little bit. I want you to think about this. Life's inconveniences are often God's intentions. Just think about this for a minute. Your life's inconveniences are oftentimes the intentions of God, God's intentions. These are so, so think about some different situations. Number one, you just got delayed. You ever do this? And, and just, just so everybody knows this, right now I'm preaching to me, and my wife's happy about it. I'm preaching to me because I'm the guy who drives in the car and is like, chop, chop. What, what is he doing? This guy's an idiot, right? Like, am I the only one, right? Or are you kidding me? Another red light. Another red light. I got to get another. Are you kidding me? Like, like, we say things like, oh, of course that happens to me. Like, like, we just expect these things. Maybe you just got delayed. Maybe you just got transferred. But our life is good here. My kids are in school here. My kids are happy in school here. I have a job. I mean, I, I have a neighborhood that I like here. We have a church here. Are you kidding me? 
Yeah, it's an inconvenience. It's not the end of the road. It's certainly an inconvenience. You just got pregnant. Now listen to me. I'm not talking to you if you're a woman and you're 24, 25, 26 years old and you've been trying to get pregnant for six months. I'm talking to, and there's some stories in this church about it and you know who you are. I'm talking to women who are 42 years old and you already got three or four kids and you found out, boom, you're pregnant. And you say, no, God, what? This is inconvenient. Not now. No, our life was good. That's an inconvenience. And then you have that child and all of a sudden someday you realize this child is the intention of God. What? Now maybe you just got rejected. You didn't get the job you really wanted. You didn't get to the school you really wanted. You didn't get that girl that you really liked. You didn't get that guy that you really liked. Man, that's an inconvenience. It's not the end of the road. God, I know that, but God, where are you? Are you paying attention? Do you care? Right? And we have to change our questions because so oftentimes we ask this question, God, what's, God, what's, what's going on? Does, does God know? We're like, what's going on? Right? Here needs to be the question that we start to ask. What's God got going on? Right? Not does God know what's going on. What's he got going on? What is God doing? In your convenience, in my inconvenience, what if we just stopped and went, what if we just started looking around? What if we, what if we started thinking about that? About 1989, I was about a year or two out of college, and I was coaching high school basketball down in Dallas. And every year, uh, I would line up camps. That's all I wanted to do. I just worked basketball camps all summer. And so I would leave my apartment in Dallas at the very end of May, and I would return to my apartment at the very end of August and get ready for the school year. And so I had camps all over the country, all over the country, all over the country. And I, was in, I had a series of camps that I worked in North Carolina. And I worked North Carolina State. And if some of you know, remember when Coach Valvano was alive. And I worked his camp. And I went to Coach K's camp at Duke. And I worked Duke camp. And I have a good buddy, George. And George just got an assistance job at Campbell University. It's a mid-major Division I program in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. There's not even a creek. It's in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. And George said, man, you're going to be in, in, uh, in Raleigh. And you're, you're going to be in, in Ch at Chapel Hill or at... Uh, Durham, you got to come and you got to work camp here. And I said, okay, right on. So I'll work your camp. So I show up for camp and one day we're, we're all there. I mean, it's just, it was great. And we're going to lunch and George comes up to me and he says, hey, you want to go to France? I thought, like, right, right now? Right now? He said, no, 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 man. End of the summer, end of the summer, end of the summer. There's a professional coach in France and some of you don't have this perspective. But at that period of time in the late 80s, there were no Europeans playing in the NBA and all of the, like the basketball mecca of the world was here in the U.S. And so if you were an American and you were associated with basketball, even if you're a nobody, if you're associated with basketball in any way, it's a big deal. And so George says to me, this pro coach in France, he brings over two Americans every summer. And all you do is you work camp all week. And then the weekends, they just, they just tour you around the country. So we worked camp all week. It was crazy. We worked camp all week. And then the weekend, we'd go to like the Eiffel Tower. And we'd go to the Louvre. And we like, it was crazy. It was phenomenal. So now that time is over. Time's over. And it's time for me to come back home. And so I'm staying with this coach in his home. And, and I, they take me to the train station. I hop on a train. And we're going back to the airport. I flew in and out of Luxembourg International. The word international, keep that in mind for a second. But we, we go back to the airport. So I'm sitting on the train. And we're headed back to the airport. And uh, next thing you know, our train just stops. It just stops. I got time. I got time. I'm all right. And eventually they told us, hey, there's been an accident on the track in front of you. And so a lot of us got off. And we went and got a bite to eat. We were at a place we could go get a bite to eat. We got back on the train. Now we go. Now we go. Eventually we get to Luxembourg. And when we get to Luxembourg, my plane hasn't left yet. So I'm still in good shape. Except I find out I cannot 
find my tickets. And you know, this was before we had e-tickets. It's before any of that. So I'm scrambling, and I'm scrambling. I can't find my ticket, man. So I go to the counter, and I say, hey, I, you know, I, I, and they're like, oh, we cannot. That's my Luxembourg accent. We cannot find your ticket. We do not know. And so, and so it's bang on. And so I, I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Now my flight, there's one flight that leaves every day at 4 o'clock for JFK. That's it. One flight. It's 2 o'clock. No ticket. It's 3 o'clock. No ticket. 4 o'clock no ticket, and my plane leaves. I don't know what I'm going to do, so I just hang out at the airport. I just hang out at the airport. I just hang out at the airport. About 8 o'clock, a woman comes up to me, and she says, hey, uh, we're about to close Luxembourg International. You're going to have to leave the building. I said, no, 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 I'm just going to sleep here in the airport at night. She said, no, 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 we close it. They lock the door, and they turn the lights off. I said, hey, I'm out of money. I can't afford a hotel room. And she goes, okay, if, if, in rare cases, we let you sleep upstairs in this corner. So there are about eight, ten of us, and we all go sleep in this corner, and it's near restrooms, and we sleep there overnight. Now I wake up the next morning, right? I try to brush my teeth, whatever, whatever, and now it's noon, and they don't have a flight for me yet. And now it's one, and they don't have a flight for me yet. And it's two, and they don't have a flight for me. And it's three, and it's four o'clock, and they close the door, and my plane, the one plane a day that goes to JFK, starts to taxi down the runway. All of a sudden, somebody from the ticket counter comes up and they said, hey, we got your ticket. We got your ticket. I said, well, my plane's leaving. They say, grab your bag. I got one big duffel. I throw it over my shoulder, and I follow them. And we go down these stairs, and we start to walk out onto the runway. And two men with this huge metal ladder are pushing it up to the airplane. And so I go up the stairs. I, they open the door, and I walk in, and everybody stares at it, and you're like, hey. And so I get on the plane, and now I catch my flight, except my flight goes into JFK, and now because my flight has been switched, I got to fly out of LaGuardia. So I get on a bus, and I take, the, LaGuardia, I take the, the bus, and I go to LaGuardia. But when I get to LaGuardia, I have missed my flight. Yes, I have. And so now I got to sleep the night at LaGuardia. And if you've never been to LaGuardia, when you sleep at LaGuardia, you sleep like this. Right? And so that's how you sleep in the garden. So there's about eight to ten of us that are all going to have to stay there overnight. And we've kind of started to make relationships. And we're all talking. And we're all talking. And we've kind of huddled around this area. We're all packing our bags around this area. Okay, now it's getting late, and I fall asleep. And all of a sudden, it's about one in the morning, and I hear a scream. This mom that we've gotten to know, there's a couple there, and they're Eastern European, and I don't remember where they Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia, but they're Eastern European, and she's screaming, my daughter's gone. She's got a six-year-old girl. My daughter's gone. My daughter's gone. And I'm like, what, what is going on here? And so the group of 10 of us, man, we pop up, and we're hustling all over, and we're hustling all over, and we are going everywhere looking for this little girl, and we're calling out her name, and we're grabbing airport employees, and nobody can find her. And suddenly, she'd been hide up in this, this little nook in the airport, and she walks out. And now, we're, we're, we're all celebrating her, but we're all wide awake. The eight of us are all sitting up in this circle. And I have the most amazing conversation about Jesus with this couple. Man, you want to talk about inconvenient? My train was late. I missed my flight. I slept a night in LaGuardia, in, in, in Luxembourg. And then, and then I get to JFK. My flight isn't flying out of JFK. My flight's, my flight's flying out of LaGuardia. And I take a bus, and I go to LaGuardia. And now I've got to spend the night at LaGuardia. And this little girl 
is missing, and then we find her, and then we have that conversation. You know why? Because sometimes, man, life's inconveniences are God's intention. I believe with all my heart. God put me in the weirdest place at the weirdest time to talk to these two people about Jesus. Sometimes life's inconveniences are God's intentions. You know, we talked before about Christmas movies, and this isn't a Christmas movie, but it's a holiday movie. This one's a little tougher, so scream this one out if you know it. What's the movie? Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, man. This wasn't no Christian movie. These are no Christian writers. This is Neil Page, and he's a, an account executive. He's a sales executive. And this is Del Griffith, and Del Griffith sells shower curtain rings. <laughs> and they're both in New York, and Neil's meeting with a guy, and he's trying to close a sale, and the sale just takes forever. And finally, he gets out of there. Man, it's two days to Thanksgiving. He's got to get out of there and catch a flight so he can be home with his family at Thanksgiving. And when he gets down to the street, man, it's just, he just can't catch a cab. He can't catch a cab. And there's finally a guy who hailed a cab, and he jumps over, and he starts negotiating and trying to bribe the guy to let me have your cab, let me have your cab. And while he does it, Del Griffith just steps into the cab and takes off. And now Neil's ticked. Eventually, he gets to the airport. His flight was late, so they haven't left there yet. And he runs in, and he meets Del right there, and they start chatting. And they happen to sit next to each other on the airplane. And man, you, those of you who have seen the movie, it's like the rest of the movie is, then the plane had a problem, then they, then they had to take a train, and then that was a problem, and they have an argument, and they split up, then they get back together, and then they get an automobile, and the automobile catches on fire. It's the whole thing, right? So they finally get back to Chicago, which is where they were both trying to get. And they've made up, and Neil says goodbye to him, and he gets on a, a train, and he's going back home. And it's very curious, if you've never seen the movie, he's sitting on the train and all these scenes start playing back in his head about different things that Dell has said and things that he didn't say and things that he did. And as Neil's sitting on the plane, it becomes very obvious to him, that dude's not trying to get home. He's actually not trying to get home. And so he hops off the train, he gets the train going back the other way. And Dell is still sitting there at the train station. And Neil walks up and they begin to talk. And he finds out that Dell is actually homeless, and his wife died eight years ago, and he has nowhere to go for Thanksgiving. And Neil, and I'm going to use this word generously, he ministers to him, and he takes him home with him for Thanksgiving, and he introduces his family to his new friend. And I talk about inconvenience. That whole movie was about inconvenience. But see, sometimes life's inconveniences are God's intentions. I, I, I just want you to hold on to that this morning. I want you to go home with that phrase in your head. And want us to start asking different questions when life becomes really inconvenient. Can we just stop? Just stop. God, what are you wanting to do? What are you wanting to show me? See, God, it, when things are really inconvenient, what, what are you trying to teach me? Here's another one that I think we should start asking. God, how do you want to use me? See, why are you putting me here at this moment in time? God, how do you want to use me? Life's inconveniences are often God's intentions.